Hello, and welcome to the second season of Genetically Speaking, the podcast for the American Society of Human Genetics, where we explore the human stories behind human genetics and genomics research. I'm your host, Chris Gunter. Today, our nominated paper is Building an Infrastructure to Enable Delivery of Genomic Medicine, published in 2021 in the American Journal of Medical Genetics. And I'm pleased to welcome the author, Jillian Hooker, who is at Concert Genetics and the Vanderbilt Genetics Institute, as well as serving as the immediate past president of the National Society of Genetic Counselors, or NSGC. Welcome, and we are so glad to have you joining us. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. So on reading this paper, which is a commentary, I imagine there were many different driving forces uh, other than just your everyday work, which is a huge driving force here, behind you wanting to write this commentary. So was there a specific catalyst, though, that led to you putting everything together in this format? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a, a catalyst and also probably a credit uh, that should be given along with this commentary. So several years ago, uh, my colleagues and I at concert sat down to really talk about um, where we were going as a company, but also where the space, the entire landscape of genetic medicine, precision medicine was going in general. Um, and it was really through that exercise that we came to envision um, what we now call the Genetic Health Information Network, which is really the network of all stakeholders that need to work together in order to really deliver value to patients in genetic medicine. The labs that perform the tests, the providers who order the tests, the payers who pay for the tests. And then through that articulation, um, we decided to actually start convening these folks annually in a meeting um, that we call the Genetic Health Information Network Summit. Um, and I think that the catalyst for this paper was really this series of conversations that we've had at the summit over the last three years of meetings um, prior to the pandemic, um, and the conversations and the, the the many pain points that we heard from many different stakeholders um, across the space, and 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 using so when when I had the opportunity to write this commentary, using it as an opportunity to really synthesize a lot of those stories um, and challenges and opportunities that that we've seen over the years there. So, did the writing of the piece go as you expected to? Did you hit any roadblocks? Yeah. I mean, I think so much of it really is what I live and breathe every day and, and care very much about. And so um, the first part of the writing, which is generally my habit, was me in a coffee shop for several hours on a Sunday morning, also pre-pandemic, um, just just getting it all out there, like writing it all down. And I sat down and really wrote um, the complete first draft. Um, but as first drafts often go, there was certainly some some vagueness to it and some fuzziness to it that then took a lot longer to kind of go back and refine and and then through the figures and the graphics that are in it, like be much more specific about what what exactly we meant about what a, an efficiently running infrastructure would really look like. Yeah, and that's great because that brings me to the next question, which is the figures of the piece are primarily two infographics. They're contrasting what you call the inefficient value chain currently of genetic testing with your vision of an integrated value chain that enables learning. So let's start with the current state, the first figure. I absolutely, in my paper, highlighted the sentence where you point out that most genetic testing results, even if they are in the EHR, which is some of them are not, they are hidden away in PDFs where they're difficult to find. That's been my experience as well, which I think researchers don't really understand. They just think, oh, mine it. It's all there. It's fine. It's absolutely right there. not. So what, what do we do about that? Yeah. Yeah. So we really wanted to lay out the challenges first. Um, and, and that's what the first figure does, as you said, is really trace the journey um, and, and in the form of a value chain. And that's a central theme in the paper is the idea that there is a value chain for the delivery of 
um, genetic tests, diagnostics, that um, really multiple stakeholders have to do particular jobs at particular steps in the process in order for patients to really get value from those diagnostics. And the way we lay it out, it starts with the patient identification. We have to find the people who can benefit from these diagnostics. And we know um, that, that there is widely disparate access to diagnostics in the country right now, um, depending on who you're seen by, where you live, um, what you look like. All of these things can impact whether or not you get a genetic test or not. And we need to fix that. And we need to come up with better algorithms and tool, tools for identifying the patients who need testing. Once we identify the patients, we need to identify what tests they need. Um, we also know that, that the misorder rate of genetic tests is really high, estimated at about 25% of all genetic tests today are misordered. They were not the appropriate test. They were either a test that a patient didn't need or the wrong test, the patient needed a different test. Um, or in some cases, the patient didn't need a test at all. So um, identifying the right test, um, placing the order, sending the information to the lab, who is in most cases, about 80 to 90% of the time when a genetic test is performed, it's sent to an outside party, not within the same institution where the patient's seen. And so that's an entirely different organization that doesn't usually have access to the electronic health records where the patient was originally seen. They have incomplete clinical data and they have to perform a test with just sort of a narrow snapshot of who that patient is and write an interpretation of it. Um, and so this is another area where data can get lost. The lab can be going back and forth and efficiently. We need to know this. We need to know that. Um, and then they need to get paid for it and they need to bill for it. Um, and the billing system for genetic testing is really, really um, inadequate right now. Uh, so there are not enough CPT codes to describe the entire range of genetic tests. Genetic tests are fr frequently billed with multiple CPT codes. Payers then get the claims and they're not really even sure what they're being asked to pay for, let alone if they cover it or not. Um, it's not well aligned to the policies for coverage. And so they have to figure that out. And, and this is another area where lots of people are doing lots of manual work to make it run um, and to get it paid. And a lot of times labs are not getting consistently paid. Payers are putting more and more people at, at the problem of managing genetic testing, even though it's really only a small percentage of all of the spend across a health plan. Then go once the test is performed, and this gets to what you, what you zeroed in on, Chris, which was um, how does the data get back to the EHR? That is such a critical step to making it actually valuable and useful for a patient is putting it with all the other patient information that a provider needs to have in front of them to make the right decision. Um, and most of the time, uh, the test results come back as PDFs, and that's if they come back electronically. They still come back by fax in many sessions. One of the only places I know of where fax machines are still are still routinely being used. Um, and then they kind of get buried in the EHR, so you can walk into some of the best hospitals, best institutions in the country and ask them, how many of your patients have had genetic testing? And they couldn't answer that question, um, which is really unlike a lot of other types of lab testings where it would be a, a major compliance issue if these results were not accessible. But somehow for genetic tests, it's, it's sort of separate. And then not only do we at that stage miss the opportunity for the patient to have the results there and integrated in front of them, but for the system to learn from these results and continue adding to knowledge bases so that we really are advancing systematically our awareness in genetics. So there's so many challenges and also so many opportunities along the way to improve this value chain, to improve the flow of data through the system to ultimately deliver more value. Yeah, that's a lot for one figure. 
Julian. You can tell I'm getting worked <laughs> up here. <laughs> yeah, and that's good. That is well. That's why you wrote a commentary. So, it, I, well, my point, however, in this case, is that makes me a little depressed to ask you the next question, which is how far away are we from the next figure, your second figure, which is the integrated value chain? Yeah. So I, I think, and this is probably one of the, the points I really most wanted to make with this commentary is that we do need to think differently about infrastructure in order to get there more quickly. I think a lot of our efforts to integrate genetics into the electronic health record to solve um, payer problems have been sort of use case dependent, one test at a time, one condition at a time, maybe four or five conditions. But we, um, at Concert, we track and maintain the market of all the tests that are marketed in the United States by commercial laboratories. We track 166,000 tests, which is also in the paper. That's figure three. You didn't mention that, but we, we look at the growth of the available tests. And so any solutions we develop, um, we community develop, not just Concert, um, to manage genetics have to take into account um, the broad range of tests and, and account for um, all of the many, many different tests that are out there. And so building one-off use cases really isn't a scalable or sustainable approach to building a mature infrastructure. Also because the market is changing so quickly that if you build a decision, a, a, you know, clinical decision support around one test, in a year or two, that test might not even be offered anymore in that way. So building foundational infrastructure that accounts for all of the tests, all of the billing, all of the standards that you need to make this run, I think is really a key first step um, to getting us there faster. Um, and then with better foundational infrastructure in place, I think it's much easier to start building things onto that to, to get to a place where this information starts to flow much better between stakeholders. I think the other key thing we've learned um, through our summit, through our conversations, is that um, you need to think a lot about the financial incentives too. So, and this is where you know we can't just solve it from a research perspective, but ignore the practical realities of how healthcare is delivered in the United States. And so working with different stakeholders to understand where their pain points are and where they have financial incentives to solve problems. You know, the payers certainly dealing with inefficiencies around paying for genetic tests have a motivation to make this, this all flow better. And I think as it becomes more and more clear how genetic tests are tied to downstream services that are far more expensive than genetic tests, precision therapies and surgeries, you know, those costs um, are, are a much greater percentage of the total spend for a health plan. And so as we tie this information together, they have incentives to want to support this infrastructure to make it flow better. Yeah. And that brings us to one of the other things that I highlighted in there was I um, appreciated the numbers that you stated towards the end about genetic counselors, that the 5,000th genetic counselor were certified in the U.S., which is great. And the field is on track to double within the next 10 years. That's obviously a key part of your vision is genetic counselors. So if we have trainee genetic counselors or clinical genetists who will work with them listening, what advice do you have for them to help change the system? Yeah, absolutely. So I wrote this when I was the president of NSGC. And so I absolutely um, was not going to leave the workforce issues out of it. Although even if I weren't, I would have um, considered workforce an essential element of infrastructure. I really think it is having people who know and understand 
um, the tests themselves, the intricacies of the tests are really critical um, uh, to both building the infrastructure and making it run and making it flow. Um, and so for folks who are out there listening who I, you know work as genetic specialists, genetics providers, um, knowing that they have a role in building this infrastructure and, and being at the table in conversations about how we build this, advocating within hospitals, within laboratories, within payers, for better tools and resources to manage genetics, I think is key right now. Um, and, and bringing the patient experience to the table, I think that is so critical. And it's certainly something that really sort of um, I carry with me every day. Like you walk through the story of a patient whose, whose provider tells them you need a genetic test and they ask, well, will it be covered by my insurance? How much will it cost me? And the reality is today, you can't answer that question very clearly. And so what a provider will often say is like, we'll call your insurance company. And so then the patient calls the insurance company and says, is this test covered? And the insurance company says, well, I don't know. How's it going to be coded? And the patient says, what's a code? Right. And the insurance company says, a code is how we pay for things. You'll have right. to go ask your provider how it's going to be coded. So the patient goes back to the provider and says, how's it going to be coded? And the provider most often says, well, I don't bill for it. The lab bills for it. You're going to have to call the lab. So the patient calls the lab and says, how's it going to be coded? And then hopefully gets the codes from the lab and then goes back to the insurance company. And if there's multiple codes, they might say, well, this code is covered if you meet these criteria. And this code is covered for these. And this code is covered for these. It's just, it's so broken. And I think it's our, our providers, our genetics providers, genetic counselors, medical geneticists, who are like on the ground experiencing this reality. And, and we really need to continue to bring it to light um, because it's not sustainable. Uh, we need to fix it for our patients. And I want to highlight that when you said the value chain, when you use that, you don't mean just in terms of money for hospitals and providers, et cetera. Obviously, as you said, the patient experience yeah. is a crucial part of that as well. Yeah. And that's where counseling comes in too, yeah. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's all about the ultimate value to the patient of these services, diagnostics, genetic counseling, um, the whole the whole path through for families um, and how we define that value. And the truth is, I think it's another area where we're, we're not doing very well at arriving at value. So if you look at costs for genetic tests, um, they're all over the place. And it totally depends who you are as to how much the genetic test costs. So the insurance companies are asked to pay one thing. The hospitals who pay for tests sometimes directly and then try to bill for it themselves, they have a whole different set of rates and way, ways of paying for tests. And then there's self-pay options for patients directly, which are often far cheaper than the prices that are offered to hospitals or insurance companies. In the end, it's all our money, whether it's our money as taxpayers who are paying into Medicaid and Medicare who pay for the test, or whether it's our money to our employers who are paying our insurance companies, like it's all our money. But the way that these, these prices get set for different people is so different. And it's really, it's not an open and transparent market, which is part of, um, from a concert perspective, what got us into this in the, the whole, the first place was like, how do we build a more open, transparent market around genetic testing? So what I like about a commentary is that you're already kind of putting your ideas into a format, which is maybe a little bit easier to read for a wider audience than a more specialized paper. But did you do any additional science communication around the commentary, trying to make sure it got out there? 
Um, yeah, we we have we've been on a number of podcasts um, and we've presented it in a number of settings as well. Um, I think you know, like I said, it's really a piece of a much larger conversation that we're hosting and having um, both through our summit um, with other stakeholders in the market, which to me is really how we move things forward. Is we build relationships across stakeholders between payers and labs and hospitals and technology companies, um, build the relationships, come together to talk about it, to have an ongoing, progressive, advancing conversation about this is really, to me, what will drive it forward um, in the market. So it sounds like this is an area, normally I would ask you, what's the next step for your research, right? This is an area that you're living in. So I feel like I'm just asking, so what are you doing tomorrow? But <laughs> tell us a little bit about some of the next steps for you personally in making this happen. Well, I'll talk about the research question a little bit too. Okay. Um, as you mentioned, I do have um, an affiliation with Vanderbilt Genetics Institute, and I work with a training program there of genetic counseling students. And I'm really passionate about training of genetic counseling students and genetic counseling students doing research and particularly passionate about real world research. Like how do we take real data, real EHR data, real claims data, um, real data about the genetic testing market and use that to learn, um, learn about um, you know, where the current inefficiencies in the space are, um, where the access disparities are um, in the space and drive that forward. And I think as we build a more, more mature infrastructure, we'll have more and more opportunities to study how that's flowing, how people are accessing genetic tests, who's getting access, who's not. Um, and so I think that that is very much a built-in next step um, to this paper. Um, as for concert um, and what we're doing, I, I think we're continuing, as I, I look at what we do, is continuing to build brick by brick by brick, the standards you need to track genetic tests in the space, um, to build in ordering into um, hospital systems so that people aren't ordering genetic tests just under miscellaneous categories anymore, but the specific test that was ordered is being tracked, um, that someday in real time, providers actually could just tell their patients, yes or no, it's covered, and here's how much it costs in real time without it being a complicated question. There's a lot of research to show that genetic counselors spend an inordinate amount of time talking about insurance. They even have a word for it. Gene insurance counseling um, that genetic counselors do. I think it was coined by Chelsea Wagner when she was a student in the Augustana training program. So um, that, that's not the best use of our time uh, with our patients. So if we can make this question easy and simple to answer um, in real time, um, and then what about like real-time automatic prior authorization? So nobody has to do all the paperwork around prior authorization anymore because the truth is labs, genetic counselors, and payers are all spending way too much time. And these are, these are people with master's degrees spending time just to figure out if a test is covered or not. Um, and as the cost of testing goes down, you're spending more and more just to determine whether to pay it, let alone you know how to pay it. So, so I think we've got to fix that um, and get to a point where that's really real time. And then by the time it gets to the payers, it's already really clear, pay it or don't pay it. Here's how much it costs. Just sort of funnel it through, um, make that more efficient. And then um, on the payer side and the provider side, making sure that those test results are tied to an infrastructure for managing the patient afterwards, whether it be a drug, you know, in the case of a cancer patient where they have maybe a tumor profile that predicts which therapy they should receive 
or when you're talking about germline variants, putting people on a care pathway that gets them the right screening, the right preventative measures over the course of their lifetime, um, building those sort of resources out to, to tie it together. And if you tie it together, both at the provider side, and certainly for the patients so that they're educated, and then at the payer side, can we, can we make that process of everything downstream smoother too? Things that are automatically approved based on the findings of the genetic test result without having to go through repeated prior authorizations there as well, um, which brings certainty of payment for providers and labs. They can predict um, what's gonna happen makes it much easier to think about expanding, um, expanding what you do in genetics and precision medicine. Um, and, then, and then for payers, just consistency of how things come in so they can build their systems and do more automatically without having to pay people to do things manually. Seems like it, what would be really interesting is if we could have some kind of exchange program where we had like genetic counselors and insurance people spend two weeks like swapping jobs and finding out, having the lived experience of the other one, right? That would be Really I think that's so amazing. One last question in terms of training. I have a post-bac fellow who is planning to go to uh, apply for genetic counseling school this year. Um, and she is thinking about trying to decide whether to get a master's or a PhD in genetic counseling. Do you have any advice, since you obviously are well-placed to answer this, any advice for people in a similar situation that who are trying to decide if they want to do research in particular? Absolutely. I love this question. And I actually, so I got my PhD first um, and then uh, hit sort of an existential crisis at the end of my PhD where I needed to do something um, meaningful, meaningful to families and people who uh, were benefiting from genetic medicine and really came to that, came to genetic counseling from that angle afterwards, um, but very much held on to my research heart when I did it. Um, and, uh, uh, and it has really, I think, um, been a good path for me to be a dual degree PhD genetic counselor. I feel like it's either, I don't know if it's open doors that wouldn't have opened otherwise, but I think maybe it's lowered barriers um, in some cases to specific jobs and um, positions. My first job out of my genetic counseling program was actually a postdoc, which I thought I was avoiding when I went into genetic counseling, but then found a, a, just a perfect opportunity that combined genetic counseling and research in a great way um, that I think because of my PhD was really open to me. Um, and so I think that's an argument in favor of getting a PhD is that it may open additional doors or opportunities for people um, to do research and certainly will give you deeper research training um, in specific skills and specific skill areas. Um, I, I also think um, grad school is really fun. As somebody who went to grad school as long as I possibly could and delayed adulthood as long as possible, um, I don't regret that either. It was a lot of fun. Um, so, uh, but at the same time, I think there are a lot of really skilled genetic counselor researchers um, who do not have PhDs, um, who've worked in environments where they've learned as they've gone along, um, genetic counselors now who are leading R01 funded studies from the NIH um, and, and doing so fantastically. Um, so I don't think it's a prerequisite um, or a must have or a need to have. I still would put it in the category of like, personal decision. Where are you in your life and what do you want and what are you looking for and how well does that align? Um, because I think I think both paths um, to being a genetic counselor researcher are, are really open. And then even beyond that, I think the other thing I'd comment on is that um, you know, you also aren't confined to acad academia is I guess what my story would say is that there are um, ways that you can do research um, in the private sector that are fun and interesting. And for me, I think 
What I like about being in the private sector is, is one, how applied it is. Um, that really appeals to me. Um, and also the pace of it. I like the speed of um, and nimbleness of working in a, in a small or sort of startup. Um, it was a startup. Now I would say we're a little older than that. But um, working in that environment that is is nimble and fast paced and um, able to, to change and move pretty quickly. That's great. Thank you so much. I will tell my host back to listen to this, which she would already. So send my way. I'd be happy to talk to her. Anybody else out there who's listening, you can find me pretty easily on the, on the internet of things. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Your phone's be ringing off the hook. This is fantastic. <laughs> All right. Well, Jillian, thank you so much. And again, uh, I encourage everyone to read the commentary. I think as, as you've heard today, just a little bit of it, there's a lot for everyone to think about. So Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a really fun conversation.